Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Primetime on Money FM 89.3. You're with Bharati Jagdish and Timothy Goh. The latest on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's continuing battle with COVID-19, and a debate in the EU about what really qualifies as green investments. Well, we are going to talk to Rob Hugh-Jones, editor at the BBC, for his perspective and the latest on these global headlines that he is tracking for us for the week ahead. Good morning to you, Rob. Yes, and good evening to you. Rob, let's uh, begin there in Europe with the latest from the Ukraine. Another busy week there relating to the Russian invasion. And now Russia is telling us that they've destroyed a cache of weapons in the eastern Donbass region. You have the latest on that? Well, we we have that news that they say they've uh, destroyed weapons in the east. Actually, over the weekend, they said they destroyed weapons in the west as well. And if you think these weapons, by and large, are coming from the west, and uh, Ukraine is a very big country, they've got to traverse, they've got to cross that country. Uh, you know, one, one wonders how, if uh, Russia is taking out the infrastructure or at least monitoring it. Uh, but it's not unusual now to, to see Russia targeting uh, Western munitions, Western equipment, Western support for Ukraine in particular. And as I say, they, they did attack uh, what they said were Western munitions over the weekend in the West. And now we hear uh, of a similar attack in the East. So this is, this is very much ongoing and it's very much a way of just sort of strangling any kind of Western support for Ukraine. Just looking ahead to the medium term, Rob, reports say that Ukraine's military intelligence arm believes that Russia can actually continue this war for another year, warning that Kyiv is significantly outgunned on the front lines. What are analysts saying and what is the mood like on the ground when it comes to how long this conflict will last and what the end game really is here? Well, a lot of experts think that uh, this war will go on for a long time. And that's because, if you remember, back in February 24th, the Russians came across the border and they headed for Kiev, the capital, and they surrounded uh, the capital to some extent. They had that long line of... Uh, of uh, weaponry and armor heading down to the capital, if you remember. And then, and then they decided they would really focus their efforts on the east in the Donbass. And the big city that we've heard all about is Severodonetsk. And that's been uh, a very important story over the last week or so because it's so strategic. And uh, the Russians uh, make claims about how far they've penetrated that city and the Ukrainians make counterclaims. And really, we've had that almost every day. But, the, the, you know, the war is focused on the east. And don't forget, there was a war there from 2014 with uh, Russian-backed separatists after the annexation of Crimea. So, you know, this, this is a whole region, really, that has been used to war for some time. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that we do have some sort of quite startling uh, news stories coming out now, and, uh, and we certainly will this week. And one of them might interest your listeners. It's that Russia, the perception is that Russia has been facing sanctions, right? And that they have been, uh, to some extent, their, their trade in oil and gas, for example, which they rely so much on, has been choked off to some degree. Well, look at this. There's a report out today by the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air. And it says Russia received around $100 billion for its fossil fuels during the first 100 days of this war. It says massively inflated prices have more than compensated for the slight drop in Russian sales and Mm. exports. And it gives the uh, example that the European Union cut its imports of Russian oil and gas by a fifth 
in May, but Russian export prices remain on average 60% higher than last year. So it's quite interesting because the, 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 you know, the perception is that the sanctions are really biting and particularly into Russia's very important energy sector. And yet that research suggests that Russia is not uh, suffering too much. And Vladimir Putin, President Vladimir Putin, will attend an economic forum in St. Petersburg this coming week. And he'll be giving an address, I believe, on Friday. And we should hear perhaps a bit more about how the Russian economy is faring. Mm, sounds like Russia doesn't have much of an incentive to stop what it's doing. Well, that's right. But, you know, there are incentives all over to try and stop Russia from what mm-hmm. it's doing. So yeah. the EU is having no end of conversations about this, about, uh, you know, how countries that are so reliant on Russian energy can start to reduce that reliance and can start looking for alternative uh, sources of energy. And, of course, we've had countries like Hungary, very, very reliant, who've said, we just can't do this. We cannot do this. Uh, in fact, the, the leader in Hungary said, look, it would be like bom- uh, dropping an atomic bomb on our economy were we just to cut off uh, Russian oil and gas right. supplies. So it's a, it's, it remains a massive debate inside the European Union. So where does this leave the Ukrainian leadership? Then are we starting to see some cracks perhaps in uh, its alliance with the West? On Friday, the U.S. President Joe Biden reveals that uh, President Zelensky didn't want to hear intelligence, uh, U.S. intelligence, uh, telling them that Putin was planning to attack. This was earlier this year. Now, today, a Ukrainian spokesman is disputing uh, those comments by the U.S. President. So what is happening between, you know, inside uh, that part of of uh, their relationship. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because since February the 24th, since the invasion, there has been this effort to try and keep the Western alliance, and that really includes the you know, European Union, uh, Western countries like Britain that are not in the European Union, uh, the USA, and NATO, the military, the Western military alliance, there has been an enormous effort uh, into trying to keep the sort of unity between mm-hmm. these big uh, blocks, which of course, I mean, the European Union is composed of 27 countries. You know, how do you get every one of those countries on side? NATO's 30 members and may soon be 32 if you include Finland and Sweden who want to come in. How do you keep all of these countries on side totally and, and completely united? And of course, you know, it's been, I mean, you could say it's been incredible that they have been as united as they have been. We are into what, the hundred and 10th day, something like that, of this war, and, the, and we've seen very few cracks along the way. So I, I, guess, I, guess you, I guess you might say cracks will inevitably appear, and uh, perhaps we're seeing some now, although there's not too much evidence of that, I don't think. Rob, you alluded to Europe's reliance on Russian oil earlier. So there is something interesting, somewhat related to this, that has emerged in Europe at this point. The European Commission this year proposed including gas and nuclear in the bloc's sustainable finance taxonomy, I understand. So it's a system for labelling climate-friendly investments. Of course, they are now disagreeing on the green credentials of gas and nuclear, I understand. However, the final EU proposal did come after lobbying from some countries that said that investment in gas was needed to help help them at least phase out coal, which is more polluting. Countries are also divided over nuclear energy. It's CO2-free, but it produces radioactive waste. What exactly is going on here? Where are we at in this debate? Well, it's so true. I mean, it's a, if you look at the European Union, what it's saying, um, 
um, about its kind of green credentials and so on. The EU has set itself a goal of becoming climate neutral by 2050, right? And it argues that in order to get there, it's going to need a huge amount of private investment into all manner of kind of green projects to make that green transition, right? That, that, that's, that's what really this is all about. And so to do that, they need to attract money in. And to do that, they've got to use labels like green and sustainable in order to, ex- to, to, to excite, you know, big corporate investors, uh, big groups, big lobbying groups, personal investors and so on. It, it's just a, a sign of the times, really. And what we have now is we have uh, the European Parliament voting this week. There are 705 members of the European Parliament. And, of course, some of those people are from green parties, parties that, uh, that their, their principal banner is an environmental one. Um, and they've all got to vote this week on whether it's okay, this taxonomy, this, this kind of rule book for investors, this kind of guide for investors, it, it's, whether it's okay to use words like green and sustainable when you're talking about nuclear energy. energy. And don't forget, countries like France rely very heavily on nuclear energy and on natural gas generation. And again, you've alluded to it there, but Poland, for example, relies very much on coal uh, for its power. So were Poland to move from coal to natural gas generation that is relatively, relatively clean compared to coal, then can they use the word sustainable or green to describe that? And that's what this debate is all about. But it'll be very interesting when it gets to an actual vote in the European Parliament, which is what we're going to see this week. All right, let's move on now to uh, some news developments in this part of the world in Asia with China reimposing COVID-19 restrictions again in Beijing. Really, at this point, two years into the pandemic, we're still talking about their COVID zero policy. The rest of the world has moved on, but it doesn't seem like China is ready to do so. No, that's right. And even the World Health Organization has said, look, this policy is not sustainable in an era of Omicron, you know, the fast moving Omicron. Uh, It says it's not sustainable. China says, yes, it is. Look at our relatively low deaths and infection rates. And uh, this is the way that we will get on top of this. Um, But you have to say, you know, we've had all the news about Shanghai, that huge city, 25, 26 million people, so much of it in lockdown for so many months. And now we see um, another incident in Beijing around this bar. It's called Heaven Supermarket Bar. And over the weekend, they were reporting 160-odd cases there. And that is leading to queues in that region of Beijing, that area of Beijing, uh, outside testing centers. And news today that we're going to have three days of mass testing uh, on millions of people in the Chinese capital. So it's very, very disruptive. And... uh, but, you know, the rest of the world's kind of looking at vaccination or many, many other countries looking at vaccination as the route out of this. Uh, but in China, I mean, if you look at the vaccination rates for, quote, elderly people, you see that actually they're really only about 60 percent for those over the age of 60. So that makes that your population quite uh, vulnerable if you're in China. Uh, and so, you know, and, and just think of the huge, huge challenge that it would uh, take to make it to reverse on this policy and to start trying to vaccinate everyone, particularly as the Chinese vaccines. I think there are still a few questions about the e- uh, efficacy of that. So, so you know, China carries on. And uh, again, we should say that its death rate and infection rate is low relative to other countries, certainly the US, UK and others. Um, but is that 
zero COVID policy, is it sustainable in the longer term? Question marks remain. Mm, For sure. And I know that a lot of investors are also asking whether China's plans to stimulate the economy and to help out during this time that it chooses to maintain its COVID zero policy, whether those policies will work in order to help the economy. What are you hearing from the ground in regard to confidence in China's steps or its planned steps to help the economy? Well, I suppose China can do what it wants, can't it? It's got Mm. the power and it's got the control to do what it wants. And as I say, these uh, death rates and infection rates are so low. And when you look at the actual you know, size and power and strength and muscle of China. Uh, I think generally the feeling across the world is, look, this is a country that if any country in the world can clamp down quickly on COVID cases, it's China. Um, so there is some, I think, uh, perception across the world that actually China's response is quite an impressive one. Um, the ability to be able to move in so quickly uh, to to have this to have decent monitoring, get in there quickly and deal with cases as they arise is, is pretty impressive. I'm not sure it would be possible in many other countries. Imagine That's that, true. for example, in the U.S. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Too many um, jurisdictions in the U.S. to be able to do this. Exactly. You've got all the day. You've got the states versus federal, haven't you? And, and, and cities uh, as, as well. We've seen, as we've seen over some time, you've got. There is such a such a, a, a tug of war between uh, Washington D.C. and the states. So how would you how would you do that in 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 countries like the USA? But China seems to have the the power and the control to do that. But not to mention, of course, uh, Hugh, that we China getting out of their co- current COVID nineteen situation is of interest for the rest of us for the rest of the world. Absolutely, and that that matters to all of us, doesn't it? You you, you just think of the. You know, think of, think on uh, talking about America. Just think of America's Pacific West Coast and the number of Chinese ships that sit in those ports, come in and out of those ports. It's just, it's no no surprise that we are we are extremely dependent on uh, on the, the huge manufacturing hub that that China really is. Now, on a brighter note, Rob, the World Cup will be taking place in November later this year. But obviously, the hype has already started to be built right now. And there are some events this coming week around the World Cup. Tell us more. Yes, so the World Cup, your listeners may know, uh, will happen between November and December, 28 days in Qatar. And what's kind of interesting is that it's the first World Cup in the Gulf. It's the first in a Middle East country. It's the first in an Arab country. And so it's kind of uh, it's kind of breaking the mold. It's doing something new, and it's going to make the most of this. I mean, it's very rich on oil and gas, as you know, Qatar, and it's going to make the most of this kind of a of, of the novelty. It's it's saying it wants to throw its doors open to the Arab world. It wants to invite 1.5 million visitors in to experience. Uh, the Arab world to be introduced to the Arab world in many in, in many cases. So it, we're going to see an awful lot of that sort of talk uh, from now on. And this coming week, they are officially uh, unveiling or unveiling the official poster uh, for the World Cup. And that's the, the poster that certainly when you go back to the Russian World Cup, the last one in 2018, that poster was all over the place. You know, every bus stop had that poster uh, on it to, to promote the World Cup. So I think we're going to see quite a lot of that coming up this week. And Qatar is an interesting one because it's so small. If you look at it on the map, you know, it's right there on the Persian Gulf, right next to Saudi Arabia, but a small, compact country. 
and the eight stadia that they've built are really quite close to each other. So when you were back in Russia in 2018, you had to fly between the venues you know, over this enormous kind of landmass. You won't have to do that in Qatar. Uh, nobody's going to have to fly anywhere to get to those eight sta- stadia. Uh, in fact, I think the transition time from the, the, the highest transition time from one stadia to another is less than an hour. So, so that's what we're looking at there. And of course, and Qatar will make the most of this. And I think we're going to see a great big publicity machine rolling into, into action now. Although I should say there are contentious points about the migrant workers, for example, who've helped build mm. these stadia and various other things. But that, that's where we are. Mm, the green credentials of all of this as well. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. Rob Hugh-Jones, editor at the BBC. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.